Hey, there, howdy. Thanks for tuning in. We're just kind of stumbling through a Wednesday here. Other side of Texas, thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Jay West Texas Leeson, Queenie, Catherine Wilkes across the way. And we do appreciate you tuning in. Good show ahead for you here today. Got Ross Ramsey, executive editor of the Texas Tribune, coming up uh, about 15 minutes from now. And then Rick Donnelly of the Texas Beer Alliance on your Wednesday drive home. Uh, or if you're listening to podcasts afterwards. One thing that I am crazy about today is... I don't... What is this about? Ted Cruz today. So we see in polls that Cruz is up. It just varies poll to poll. But I think most people think Cruz is up 8% on Beto O'Rourke. Well, today, Ted Cruz, in what many people... The reason I'm covering it here is because many people believe that this will be the closest Democratic versus Republican race in Texas whether that's on the federal level or the state level or otherwise, with some exceptions of house races in more urban, like DFW districts. Uh, Ted Cruz today, this is the Dallas Morning News. Senator Ted Cruz on Wednesday attacked his Democratic challenger, Representative Beto O'Rourke, over a tax fraud case involving his rival's mother. Yo mama! Marking a deeply personal escalation in what's expected to be Texas's most heated statewide election. Cruz questioned O'Rourke's integrity by highlighting the fact that a furniture store owned by the El Paso Democrats' mother, Melissa, in 2010, pleaded guilty to altering financial records to evade IRS reporting requirements. Mm. When you start bringing in the family members, I'm trying to, maybe there's nothing to read there. But whenever you're taking blind stabs like that, well, what about ism? Like my kids are all about what about, well, what about what they did? <laughs> what about what they did? Well, whenever what about ism doesn't just go back to your opponent, but goes to your opponent's mother mm-hmm. or somebody around your opponent, then. Maybe there's something to read there. Maybe there's not. It seems like really, usually Cruz is pretty sharp on these things. And I don't understand the sloppiness of getting mom involved. So O'Rourke's mother, Melissa, in 2010 pleaded guilty to altering financial records to evade IRS reporting requirements. The Republicans sought to tie the tax issue to O'Rourke, noting that the congressman and his mother co-own the shopping center that housed the furniture store. Quote, Representative Beto O'Rourke has been campaigning on ethics and government, but he's hiding his mother's conviction for tax fraud, his personal stake in her furniture company, and his profiting from the company. Cruz campaign spokesman Emily Miller said, I miss the days of David Dewhurst taking swings at Cruz, and Cruz taking swings at um, at Dewhurst on who they represent like Cruz represented the Chinese and this, like that was a thing like that was pretty great now like I was watching the other day a highlight video of what fouls used to be in the NBA like Isaiah Thomas coming in and like tomahawk chopping uh, Jordan on his way to the basket or Bill Lane Beer like throwing his armpit up and in Jordan's face and and making him like suffocate in his armpit like those were real fouls and I don't know I just I can't understand Cruz going to this extent here O'Rourke whose mother they've got a whole file whenever they do these things like they have a file that's three inches thick on opposition research and maybe O'Rourke's file is not very deep and that's why they went after mom initially I mean, it's only June, and here we are going after mom. The bottom line is that I'm very, very proud of my mom, O'Rourke told the El Paso Times. I love her more than I can say, and I'm grateful for everything she does, including her entire life running that store 
which her mom started in 1951. Texas Democratic Party spokesman Manny Garcia, okay Manny, gonna skip past you. It's unusual for any politician, much less, this is the news talking again, much less a frontrunner like Cruz to go after an opponent's mother, particularly so early in a campaign season. The nature of the attack could also portend a nasty shift in the contest to come. So far, had followed conventional battle lines. Well, so I was thinking about it today. This isn't the first time that parents have gotten involved with Cruz. Maybe Cruz is thinking back to another time when parents went after, were gone after, and with some voters, it stuck. Let me cue for you now the President of the United States speaking, I think, in 2016. His father. I don't know his father. I met him once. I think he's a lovely guy. I think he's a lovely guy. All I did is point out the fact that on the cover of the National Enquirer, there was a picture of her, him and crazy Lee Harvey Oswald having breakfast. Now, Ted never denied that it was his father. Instead, he said, Donald Trump, I had nothing to do with it. This was a magazine. Whoa, Tama. To be fair to Cruz, Trump has just discussed, he's in part two of, of a two-part argument, where he's discussed what has happened with Melania Trump in a picture of her in GQ getting published alongside a picture of Heidi Cruz, and he's gone on to extol the virtues of GQ as a magazine. Now, Queenie, have you ever opened a GQ? Uh, no. <laughs> like, when Playboy was Playboy, GQ was, like, a step above. Mm-hmm. So far as, like, class and not showing skin. Right. But now that Playboy is GQ, GQ is, play- it's all the same thing. Mm-hmm. But he's just gone on to talk about how to extol the virtues of GQ. Now, to be fair to Cruz, here, Trump is extolling the virtues of the National Enquirer. That frankly, in many respects, should be very respected. They got OJ, they got Edwards, they got this. I mean, if that was the New York Times, they would have gotten Pulitzer Prizes for their reporting. I've always said, why didn't the National Enquirer get the Pulitzer Prize for Edwards and O.J. Simpson and all of these things? But anyway, so they have a picture, an old picture, having breakfast with Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, nothing, I'm not saying anything. They said, and here's how the press takes that story. So this had nothing to do with me, except I might have pointed it out, but it had nothing to do with me. I have no control over anything. I might have pointed it out. But they never denied, did anybody ever deny that it was the father? They're not saying, oh, that wasn't really my father. It's a little hard to do, because it looks like him. (laughs) So here's the story. The press takes that, and they say, Donald Trump and his conspiracy theories, he went out and said his father was with Lee Harvey Oswald, and he assassinated the president. What did I do? So two things. Those were the two points. So on those two points, he said about the endorsement, and, and I just had it cleared up. I think I'm doing the right thing in doing it, but I have to do it. Number one, the Heidi thing you understand. Now, number two, I know nothing about his father. I know nothing about his father. I just made it a major campaign issue. <laughs> so the uh, Dallas Morning News goes on. It's unusual for any politician, much less a front runner like Cruz, to go after an opponent's mother. I already read that, sorry. Um... Cruz's personal fireworks in the campaign thus far had been fairly limited. Cruz taunted O'Rourke, who is not Hispanic, but speaks fluent Spanish. Yeah, you don't think his name's O'Rourke? When have you ever seen a, a Spanish last name that started with an O and then had an apostrophe following the O? It's an Irishman. Over his use of his nickname, Beto, as his first name. O'Rourke also agreed with comedian Bill Maher on national television that Cruz is a giant beep hole. Though he later said he regretted that moment. You know, 
I will say on that whole name thing, Beto O'Rourke told me that he's been named Beto since he was in kindergarten. And my name is John Thomas Leeson V legally, which means that there are a lot of Johns before me. It also means that I didn't inherit a, ca- a castle, which you should if you're the fifth. <laughs> so with lack of inheritance... I, I did not name either one of my sons. They were twins. I lucked out, so I was able to just end that thing. Neither one of them are named uh, the sixth. Uh, because, you know, it's, oh, Granddaddy John. It, John. I, I I couldn't possibly name one, give one the birth the birthright and not the other. Right? So that's, that's beside the point. Everybody was called John. Like, hey, John, hey, John, 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 Jay, John, John, it's ready. John, oh, John. Everything was John, so they named me Jay. Okay, now, I don't know what ethnic group that plays to, Jay, but uh, that's how I came to be called Jay. And on this whole name thing, if O'Rourke is right, and I've not done the oppo research to figure out when they started calling him Beto because he lived in El Paso, but here's my deal. Ted Cruz is a Spanish name that speaks to white people. O'Rourke is a white name with a first name that speaks to Spanish people. So the name thing is all like we're on even bound. Now we're on level ground. Like, oh, hi, Ted. Like, I hear that all the time in Old Mexico. Oh, his name's Ted. No, nobody's name is Ted. Okay? Nobody's na- been to I've been to Spain. Nobody goes around calling each other Ted. So let's just lay off on the whole name thing and have the substance of the day- debate from there. But my hypothesis is this, that uh, Cruz learned a thing or two about going after parents in that presidential run. Maybe it'll work off for him here. He is executive editor for the Texas Tribune, Ross Ramsey, right here on other side of Texas. Ross Ramsey, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? Doing okay. Doing. Uh, we're blowing. It's uh, hump day. Get it done today, or it's not going to get done. We're getting ready for vacation next week, Ross. And it's kind of like every once in a while we have the house cleaner come to the house, and we have to clean the house before she gets there. And that's what vacation's like. At the end of the day, you just, is it worth going or not with all the animosity in the house right now? So, yeah, uh, you got to blow, you, you blow out the pipes every once in a while. Go yeah, for it. Well, it's not me blowing out the pipes. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. It's uh, Mrs. Leeson <laughs> blowing out the pipes. So, my inclination here, this is the first time we've had you on since the cake ruling at the Supreme Court. Yep. My inclination is that there are a lot of lobbyists and a lot of staffers just scurrying here, there, here, two, four, and thereafter trying to figure out what parts of Texas law don't accommodate that Supreme Court ruling. Is it smart of them to be doing that right now, Ross, politically, it, but also pragmatically? Yeah, it's a really, really narrow ruling. By that, I don't mean that the judges were split on it. I just mean that they ruled on a very narrow part of the question. And I think the next deal is going to be people who litigated this trying to find another case where they can get the Supreme Court to rule on this as a First Amendment matter. The court's ruling basically said the Colorado Commission that decided that this guy had discriminated by not baking a cake for a same-sex couple's marriage. Um that the commission was messed up in the way it ruled on this. And they said, so we're overturning the commission's ruling. But they never got to the question. They never, um, the the part of the question about whether it's legal for a baker to do that never came up in the Supreme Court's ruling. So there's not really a lot of law here to be fiddled with. I think, you know, what's going to happen next is the people who wanted to get this before the Supreme Court as a First Amendment case are going to be looking around the country for another case like it. Uh, whenever you say the people are looking for a First Amendment case, are you saying the defendants in the issue, like the for the baker to be able to have First Amendment or for the customer to have First Amendment? I think it was for the baker. I think, you know, what you're going to see is the, the same 
legal groups and people who found the Colorado case and appealed it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court in the hopes that they would get a ruling that the baker had the religious freedom to deny that couple a cake or deny them his business. Um, they're going to be looking for another case where they can get a clean ruling or try to get a clean ruling in their favor on it. On the other side, you know, the the other side of the question is trying to, you know, get a ruling that says, no, in fact, a baker can't do that, and this is a public accommodation, and you can no more do it to groups like that than you could do it to groups based on race. Yeah. It's a couple of different directions I want to go there, but here I'm, I'm going to get my pillow behind my head on Ross Ramsey's couch, my <laughs> political counselor. I mean, what kind of abdication is this? I mean, surely those justices got in a room and said, okay, we can set precedent, major precedent in U.S. law, or we can just blame the commission. If you were a law professor, you would probably look at this and say, look, the Supreme Court generally wants to come in, the courts in general, but the Supreme Court in particular, isn't there to make law. They're there to make the least amount of noise in their rulings as they can. So if they can rule on a small part of something and settle the question, rather than rule on a large question, they'll take the small question every time. Or they or or a lot of people in the law have that as their, you know, preference. Uh, the Supreme Court hasn't always done that. Sometimes they go big and they decide to make a sweeping ruling. In this case, they stopped short of the sweeping ruling and said, let's rule on the immediate question, which is whether this commission in Colorado decided this case fairly, and they said, nope, it didn't, no. um, and left it, left it right there. So the people who want a ruling on this, you know, whichever side they're on, are going to be looking around for another case that can go all the way to the Supreme Court so they can actually get the court in a place where the smallest ruling they can make is one on whether, on which side um, has the rights here, whether the baker can refuse or whether the couple is entitled. Well, That's I, a question the court I, decided this time. I completely agree with you because, because of some comments that Justice Kennedy made in the case in which he said... Uh, I'm reading from the New York Times. Towards the end of the argument, Justice Kennedy appeared to reject an argument from Mr. Cole, the couple's lawyer, that Mr. Phillips had discriminated against the couple based on their identity as gay men. Instead, Justice Kennedy seemed to, and I'm not being ideological here, Ross, I'm just laying it out. Instead, Justice Kennedy seemed to embrace a distinction pressed by Mr. Phillips' lawyer that Mr. Phillips has nothing against gay people but objected to same-sex marriage because it is at odds with his religious beliefs. Quote, it's not their identity, it's what they're doing. And that's a fundamental question whenever we get into LGBT politics is, is it inherent or is it behavior? And to see Kennedy signal their behavior... I think it's going to set off a lot of people whenever we get back into the field of politics to go after this again. He asked that question when they were in the hearing. He did not address that question in the ruling. Okay. Or, and the judge did not address it. It's so, okay. you know, one of the things here that's, you know, probably frustrating to the people who were most interested in this case, whichever side they were on, is that the court didn't end the question and make a sweeping ruling. They just answered a little narrow piece of it and you know, um, sidestepped it a little bit. Yeah. Ross Ramsey, executive editor of the Texas Tribune, covering the issues that matter in Texas with us right now. Uh, so, George P. Bush. It's not often I see somebody get in your crosshairs, but it seems like he might be a bit in your crosshairs. Tell us what uh, what happened there. He, he said well, it, and know, then uh, he didn't say it. What happened? Yeah, George... George P. Bush is the land commissioner of Texas. The general land office has uh, operational control of the Alamo. And the internal auditor at GLO uh, has been auditing the financial structure and the operational structure that they've got set up over there. And in February, the Austin American Statesman got a hold of a draft of that audit 
that was pretty critical of the finances and operations out there and said the agency ought to straighten it up. In February, when this came out, George P. Bush was in a four-way primary for his re-election. Uh, one of the four was Jerry Patterson, his predecessor at the general land office, and kind of a loud and, you know, prickly opponent. You know, if you're running against Jerry Patterson, you're going to get a couple of bruises and some scratches. And some good YouTube and Patterson videos. Was, yeah, Patterson was um, uh, knocking Bush around on this. Bush's response was that the draft audit was defective and may have been tampered with, and he said, and one of his staffers called it fake news, and um, the final audit came out, you know, the primary went by, George P. Bush won his primary, Jerry Patterson lost that primary, and then the audit came out, and this auditor in the final audit said essentially the same things that she said in the preliminary audit, and there was no evidence that anything had really been changed in a significant way. George Bush was or speaking or lying, however you want to put it, to get out of trouble before his primary, and now that the primary's gone, the audit's out. And the top line in an audit, you know, the manage, auditors always go to management and say, you know, did we miss something? What do you say to this? What's your response? And the first line of management's response in this audit is we take no issue with this audit and agree with the recommendation. Wow. So, so basically, Jerry Patterson was right back there in February. George Bush fibbed his way out of it, and, um, you know, I wrote a column about him fibbing his way out of it. And Patterson was, I mean, he was raising all sorts of cane about it. But I, what kind of, does that leave a mark on him going forward? I, you know, I think, you know, you make your reputation in politics by what you say and what you do. And, you know, um, if, if people mark him for this, I mean, you know, we write about these things. We don't tell people how to, you know, what they need to do with them. But if, you know, people decide this is something that they're going to think about when they think about George P. Bush, yeah, it's something he's going to be answering for for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, if the next time he's in an election or in a situation or something where he says, you know, this is fake news, you need to look the other way, everybody's going to give him, I can tell you everybody in journalism is going to give him a little bit more scrutiny because of this one. Yeah. You know, wait a minute, what, look what you did last time. Because It of, works for politicians on this kind of stuff the same way it works for the rest of us. If, you know, if you, yeah, because uh, burn of, me once, shame on, shame on me, you know, burn me twice, shame on you. Yeah, it, because of when it happened, too, right? It happened in the heat of February, and he called it fake. So It was, you know, I mean, his interest in, in making that story go away was clear. You know, he, he wanted to run through that the rest of that primary runoff or not, it wasn't a runoff, the rest of that primary without this thing dogging him, and he set it aside by saying, you know, it was, uh, there was some evidence, he said, that the audit has been fooled with, and, and that just wasn't the case. Yeah. Ross Ramsey, as we close out here, tell me, with, uh, with credit ratings in Texas, Moody's and Standards and Poor and everything else going forward, um, what kind of rating does Texas have right now? You know, Texas does really, really well right now. Um, but these agencies that, you know, the credit rating agencies that look at public debt and look at public finance and, you know, when, when the state floats bonds for toll roads or, you know, whatever, um, these are the guys who put the rating on it. And the rating is their assessment of the risk involved. And their uh, rating goes into the figuring on on how much you'll pay for your debt, what your interest rate's going to be, because that's based on risk. And, you know, Texas isn't in any trouble here, but it's interesting. There's been sort of a flurry of reports from rating agencies on some things that are going to face the legislature here pretty soon. And, you know, what was interesting to me about it was you hear always, you know, in election years, things that people want to do when they come into the legislative session in January. And, we're, you know, we're all hearing various things there. The rating agencies are pointing to things that the politicians aren't necessarily pointing to, but that I think are probably going to be coming up in the next legislative session. And they're pointing it out to their customers, who are the investors and the people who buy those bonds and things. And this isn't like, you know, just a rich guy buying bonds. These are institutional investors and, you know, that have, have big bucks and can finance highways and stuff. And what these guys are talking about is things like sports gambling and the recent U.S. Court, Supreme Court ruling, how's that going to affect budgets? 
what's the failure of uh, state governments to keep up with inflation in public education going to mean about construction and taxes and all of that? What are the effects of e-commerce on retail stores and what that might mean for sales and property taxes? There's a whole sort of list of wonky kind of nerdy things over there that these guys are paying attention to that I bet you are going to come up the next time the legislature meets. Hmm. So really, uh, you think that, is it going to be the credit agencies that want Texas to take up sports gambling? No, I think they're just looking at it. And, you know, the, what, the, what these reports from the credit agencies tell you is what the people who are looking at the longer-term mm-hmm. financial questions are. And, you know, their customers want to know, you know, what's, what's on the horizon, what's way out there in front of us. The sports gambling thing, the example there was, you know, the Supreme Court said that federal law, uh, the federal law that prohibits states from allowing sports gambling is unconstitutional. And if states want to do sports gambling, that's up to the states. So a lot of people look at that and say, well, you know, there could be a ton of money out there. The sports gambling business is a $150 billion business. What would that mean to state revenues? And so when you ask a question like that, you get people like, you know, Glenn Hager, the state controller on the state side, and people like these rating agencies on the private side cranking the numbers. And they both came to the same answer. It'd be a little bit of money. It wouldn't be a lot. It's not going to save anybody. Okay. So get your hopes up. All right. Well, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, Ross Ramsey puts out an analysis piece there at texastribune.org. Check those out. We read them here. You should as well. Ross Ramsey, thank you, buddy. Always a pleasure. Uh, Enjoy that vacation. I will. I will. I'm going to plug <laughs> our. I'm going to plug our pre-taped interview here. Uh, have a good day, Ross. Uh, we do we'll next week. We've got this. It might be the best week of shows we've done, and I won't even be in studio. They're they're pre-taped. We've got Ramsey. Uh, Ross goes through his bio. How he got to where he is. Scott Braddock does the same thing. And then we have a five-part series on uh, Texas Legislature 101. Branding Rottinghouse was talking about this yesterday on the program. But we're going to go through five major topics so that people like Queenie Catherine Wilkes can download it on our podcast and listen to it and understand, have a general understanding of what's going on. Because right. Rottinghouse is going to just... Hit home run. We're pre-taping those tomorrow. Really looking forward to that conversation as well. Uh, we want to welcome in now. Rick Donnelly is the president of Texas Beer Alliance. And uh, thank you for taking time there, Mr. Donnelly. Uh, glad to be joining you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Big's a, uh, big. Beer is a big deal out here. And uh, lots of people are interested in what you have to say. Tell me what uh, what is your organization, Texas Beer Alliance? We are, uh, our members are beer distributors throughout the state of Texas, uh, spanning from essentially every border uh, across the state. Uh, our members uh, distribute uh, right at uh, half of all the beer so, uh, that's distributed and sold in Texas. Wow. Uh, of every major brand and craft beers and import beers as well. Okay. Half of all the beer. It's a lot of beer. It is a lot of beer. Who drinks the most beer? What Per capita, where's the biggest beer consumption volume in Texas? Oh, easily the largest marketplace is Houston. uh, It's the fourth largest beer market in America. Uh, there's more beer sold in Houston, Texas than 26 separate states, I believe. Yeah. You know, there's an old adage about Lubbock that it uh, it talked dry and drank wet for 80 years. Where do we Correct. rank? Where do we rank? Uh, actually, I'm not sure uh, what the actual size of the market, at least it's standing, no. would be. But it's uh, most college towns do pretty good. <laughs> Well, I'm not. I'm not going to blame tech on this one. No, no. <laughs> so, I, I I would just bet you per capita, Lubbock goes mug to mug with anywhere in Texas. Oh, yeah, I I would think that's correct. Okay, so let's get down to business here. I wrote a piece uh, 
Texas Craft Brewers and the Big Beer Industrial Complex, and it got some play across the state. Uh, I want to give you the opportunity to tell me if you've read the piece uh, where I erred, where I committed overt heresy, where I was flat out wrong. I apologize. I did not see the piece. I did listen to the podcast uh, with Brock, my good friend Brock Wagner at St. Arnold's. Okay. Yeah. And, so uh, I, I, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. Uh, okay. Well, let me start here, Rick. Tell sure. me. There will be craft guys who say that House Bill 3287, and we we went over this yesterday in the program. Folks can go back and listen to the podcast to get the orientation. But House Bill 3287, in that interview with Brock Wagner, he said reduce the value of state's craft brewers by some 50% because, quote, it makes us unappealing for any other brewery in the country or the world to want to invest in our breweries because their investment could actually cause us to shut down our tap rooms is he mischaracterizing that what's brock wagner missing there well to quote brock in some of his other statements that's just malarkey uh the there are only there were only four total breweries affected by House Bill 3287. Three of those were breweries that had been purchased by Global Giants, Anheuser-Busch, Miller Coors, and Heineken. The only craft brewer that was affected by House Bill 3287, and in addition to that, was Oscar Blues in Austin, Texas, and it's because they have tremendous uh, production numbers in other states, and they, and I think the legislature has determined that once they're purchased by those large uh, conglomerates, or they have reached certain production capacities, that they are no longer new market entrants and entitled to the carve outs that the reform legislation in 2013 were designed to assist them with. Okay, so you think, so I don't know Brock Wagner personally, but I know that he has an economics degree. Why is he so concerned about the bill in 2017 that countered in some some estimation what was passed, curbed what was passed in 2015? Where's Brock Wagner, a guy with an economics degree, off on all this? Well, I think obviously they they have a tendency to want to be exempted from any regulation that they don't like. In fact, to quote Brock himself is, he would like to retain the parts of the three-tier system he likes and do away with those that he dislikes. Uh, so I think a lot of that is based upon his own uh, economic pursuits, which certainly I think most people would do and there's certainly nothing wrong with that yeah. uh, it, it's I mean we are not at war with the craft brewers uh, we enjoy our partnerships with the craft brewers and we we have been partners with them in this whole success story uh, that for a decade now has been uh, evident in the state of Texas but what I hear from them Rick is there's a sense of grow so big or else like you can meet this certain line but once you meet that line uh, you're going to have a regulation come after you. you're going to have uh, big excuse the lingo but big beer come after you well Jay, first of all yeah, members of the beer alliance of texas uh were pretty much the spearheads of the reform package in 2013. Uh, okay. We recognized that they were having some difficulty getting access to market. And we organized a series of meetings with all the stakeholders, including craft brewers, including Brock uh, and others. And 
legislation was meticulously negotiated out. In fact, uh, if you look at the caps that the craft beer industry works under uh, to retain these carve-outs, they are pretty high in comparison to what other states do. And the reason we did that was after exhaustive conversations on the subject, we increased what they even agreed to so we wouldn't have to be revisiting every two years with the legislature and having discussions about these caps. And so the caps are very liberal with respect to if you look at what the overall industry does around okay. the country. Okay, so Brock came on, Brock Wagner, St. Arnold's Brewing Company came on, and he talked about how 3287 is not pro-business. And I think a lot of people are sympathetic with Brock Wagner, especially with those who vote with Brock Wagner, more libertarian-minded members of the House and the Senate. But explain to me why 3287, Rick Donnelly, is pro-business. Well, it's it's pro-three-tier regulatory scheme. It is a proven system that for many decades has established and maintained an orderly marketplace uh, with a lot of policy uh, background involving tax collection, safety to the public, and many other factors. I, I would say this to you. Explain, that, well, hold that, on. Explain that, safety. That a lot of that mentality, uh, you hear that, well, it's not free market principles. Well, Alcoholic beverages are not your normal commodity. Uh, there are a lot of social ramifications with being in this business, uh, and I think those of us who've been in this business for a long time take that very seriously. Like what? Social ramifications? Well, drunk driving, uh, the ability to assure people that they're drinking a, a safe product, Look at what's happening with romaine lettuce right now and with eggs. Uh, we have had, unfortunately, we've had a couple of major recalls in the last couple of years uh, dealing with bottling primarily. And because of the three, strength of the three-tier system, especially the wholesale tier, we were able to get those products off the marketplace in a matter of a few days, less than a week. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the strengths of this regulatory system. Okay. So, a couple more questions here, Rick, I've got, and then you can fire away on whatever you've got. But why, my understanding is that Miller and Budweiser were grandfathered into this legislation. If this is to, you know, this partnership and success story with craft brewers... I think you, I'd have to go back and listen to the tape, but I think you called them global giants or something along those lines. Why were they grandfathered? In well, they were this? grandfathered in because they had, based upon the previous legislation, they had projects that were on the drawing board. And the brewers came to us and worked with members of the legislature and other stakeholders, and they... Uh, they pled their case, and they were given and some limited uh, ability to expand to two other locations behind the ones that they currently were operating. Uh, Oscar Blues, for instance, never came to that table and never made their case uh, for any kind of uh, consideration along that And line. that's Dale's Pell for folks in Lubbock. I don't think that people look at the Oscar Blues thing. They're just... They think along the lines of okay. Dale's pillow. But go ahead, go ahead. Uh, and, and, and so the legislature heard their, their arguments and agreed with them, and they were given a limited uh, grandfather clause with respect to being able to uh, expand to two other locations in the state. Okay. So that's the grandfathering question. Rick Donnelly president of texas beer alliance joining us here i want to ask you one more question i'm Perfect, Jack. Out, out in rural texas i understand 
the necessity of carve-outs to get policy through the federal level, the state level, and certainly in an ag industry uh, geography, we understand carve-outs. But here's what I don't understand is, just explain to me, Rick, the amount of money going into the legislature. I think $8.8 million in political contributions uh, from groups and groups associated with yours to legislators between 2013-2016. Um, that's different from carve-outs, but I'm just talking about sheer political spending. I think I would have to sit down and look at how that correlator compares to realtors to the tma oh, to I, I, oil I and gas you, if you will look at what it just seems like a lot of money rick do you understand it, the question it's a lot of money i i grant you that but if you look at what other industries are giving it it, it it's probably less than even the middle of the pack okay all right and what people don't understand is, is when they hear those kind of figures yes it's a lot of money uh, but the cost of running campaigns, the cost of those individuals uh, seeking political office, their costs have gone through the roofs. And these campaigns are, I mean, I can remember back in the 70s, you could run for the Texas House of Representatives for eighteen to $25,000. Mm -hmm. And that would be pretty well-funded race. Hmm. We've got races now that are costing a million dollars. No. And some of the very people that are advocating uh, that we blow up the three-tier system under these free market principles are the ones principally who are driving up some of those costs, people like Empire Texas. Hmm. Well, now, now you're speaking my love language, Rick. And, and, I, and I believe that, you know, this whole nonsense of deregulating the alcoholic beverage I don't think we want to see uh, beer being sold in elementary school cafeterias. We don't want to be see bars popping up in the yeah. in in the parking lots of churches. Those are all things that in this regulated market that the three tier system protects. Well, I've got some Catholic friends who might disagree with you on the last the last well, point there, but. I, I, I know one in particular is a member of the legislature, but that's another story. So, okay, but here's where I think it makes sense on the count of... I don't like the idea of grow so big or else, just to be frank. I, I think that that's a bad model, and it's going to withhold success stories, further success stories in Texas. But I do... My dad, for a time in his childhood, grew up in East Tennessee and he could tell me stories of people who had septic shock who died because of moonshine are you telling me that beer Texas Beer Alliance looks into and supports the safety of what's consumed obviously you're telling me that but it seems to me that that a, the offset of what we're talking about here would be that the three tier protects what consumers will ingest. It, it does. Look at what's recently happened in Mexico, for instance, where there was uh, there were many resorts that were found uh, that there was illicit alcoholic beverages uh, being run through uh, some of the biggest resorts in Mexico, uh, someplace where you would think that would never occur, and people were becoming deathly ill. All right. And it goes on, and that's what happens. Uh, th there are many ills that occur by allowing uh, one segment of the three tiers to control the other two segments, and that's just one of the examples. But do you disagree, Rick Donnelly, with the argument that many make, and this is even moderate, people who just look at it ob as objectively as they can, that... The wholesale distributors are driving the three-tier? You take issue with that? Because it seems to me that the middle tier is running the show. I, I, yes, I would take issue with that. Okay. Because we deal with it. I've been doing this uh, since 1980, and I will tell you that every legislative session, all the stakeholders of this industry, they approach the legislature uh, 
with various different ideas how to change the process. Every single two years, I keep hearing this nonsense talk about that, well, nothing's changed since Prohibition. Well, that's got to be news to members of the legislature who carried hundreds of bills uh, that have changed the Alcoholic Beverage Code over the course of decades. Okay. So give me a parting thought here, Rick Donnelly. Well, let me say that the whole craft beer package that was done in 2013 was established to allow people... uh, the senators especially that were involved in this, Senator Letitia Vandepute from Bear County and Kevin Eltife, who was from Tyler, one a Democrat and one a Republican, uh, had the concept that the entry level into that business would be along the brew pub model. And they would start small. They would have the ability to do certain things that we don't entitle anybody else to do in this business by being spread across all three tiers and when they got to a certain size they were then able to move to a larger category the manufacturing tier and become a production brewery but yet when they did that they lost some of the incentives that were given to them when they were starting and it was a natural progression up until uh, basically they they produced 225,000 barrels uh, which, by the way, is uh, 3 million cases of beer a year. Mm-hmm. That's not a real small entity. And I would say these tap rooms that they were given the authority, uh, they, we, if you just figure out what they're selling in their tap rooms, like Carbock, for instance, uh, which is now owned by Anheuser-Busch, uh, that is, if you put a $5 figure on each beer they sell, uh, currently a, is $3.6 million that they're able to generate just through that tap room, and that's great. Yeah, but Rick, some uh, people but, would say that Carbock got lucky. But they, they also lucky. are not anywhere near their cap. They're not even halfway to their cap of what they can legally sell through their tap room. Right. They've got still tremendous growth, and they're the largest craft brewer. I know Brock, I think, made the statement he was, uh, but he is not the largest craft brewer. Carbock is. And, uh, I think and he I meant also, independently owned, though, right? I mean, he's, Yeah, but he's, Carbock, that's, that's been a recent phenomenon. But yeah, but there are people say, Rick, that Carbock got lucky, that they got out early before the legislation in 2017. You disagree with that? Mm, I do. I don't think Lark had anything to do with, with that. Those... Because, actually, Carbock was purchased by Anheuser-Busch before that bill was even considered or even drafted. I would also say this to you. The original craft beer beer of Texas would probably be considered to be Shiner. Shiner has done rather well without any carve-outs whatsoever. So the new entrants that have come about in the craft beer business subsequent to Shiner have had tremendous legs up on the business that others did. Tito Beverage uh, with Tito's Vodka, same thing in the distilling business. I mean, he laughs at the carve-outs they're getting because he built his business long before any of these incentives were granted by the legislature. And the craft segment, whether it be the distillers or the craft brewers, ought to be thanking the legislature, not criticizing them for what they did for mm. well i'll leave the conversation there we got plenty to talk to hope you'll come back on as we get back in the legislature i hope that uh, you feel like you've gotten a fair hearing here rick donald oh, I, have, I have jay and i appreciate it and uh anytime we can help you uh please feel free to call on us and uh, we look forward to hearing from you in the future i tell you where uh, shiner does real well at my house is in the holidays with that cheer beer there you go uh, it's gain a good seven, product gain seven pounds every year uh rick donnelly Appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much, sir. But of all the little towns in West Texas, you can't understand just how. How they ride it out through the dust and drought till you live in a prairie town. Man, you know, I don't want to be sacrosanct, but whenever I hear David Blake Terrell sing Prairie Town, 
It's kind of like I'm at church camp. I just want to raise a hand. <laughs> so I don't want to be sacrosanct, like overly charismatic, so I just make a clenched fist. Oh. And people are like, oh, that guy's, he's a panther, a white panther. Driving down the road, listening to Blake Terrell. Love that stuff. Hey, tomorrow, right here on the program, <laughs> White Panther, uh, Texas Tech Health Sciences Center President, Dr. Ted Mitchell. I'm thinking about tomorrow. He's going to come out to the show. It'll be like I'm thinking the first segment. I'm thinking about going and getting, I've grown my hair out, mm-hmm. and it's it's rather thick. Yeah. I'm thinking about getting a flat top, like a three-inch flat top like Ted Mitchell. And he comes out, and I'm like, brother, let's hug. Ted Mitchell come out. Uh, Texas Tech has this mental health screening program that the governor is touting to help schools avoid mass shooters. We're going to hear from Ted Mitchell on that. He really should have his own radio show. He's great. And State Representative Lyle Larson from San Antonio has been on a tour. Guy knows everything about Texas water. Going to have him on the show to talk about what he learned. And here's my big question. Lyle Larson, can you commission a select committee? He can't because he's not speaker, but can you use your leverage there as a long-term House speaker, a power player, to get a pump designed by Texas Tech, by A&M, by somebody that will get water 3,000 feet up to Caprock from the coast? Some people will hear me say that and they think I'm crazy. Do you know what... Uh, for a long time, George Mahon was absorbed in the idea of a pipeline going from New Orleans and the Mississippi River mm-hmm. to West Texas. So, call me crazy if you want to. Call me crazy if you want to, but crazier thoughts have been thunk. Be remiss if I don't say this. Today, June 6th, this date in history, 1944, dubbed Operation Neptune then but forever since known as simply d-day allied troops on the day on this day launched their largest sea invasion ever undertaken before or since on the beaches of normandy france hey i don't know i literally don't know of a braver situation than to get off those u-boats and to storm that beach and how it turned the war and how it turned the world and uh we already had Memorial Day, but this is Memorial Day Part B. Man, God bless those troops, and God bless troops that are willing to do the same thing for this great country. We going to be back with you tomorrow right here on the other side of Texas. Great week lined up. Next week is going to be so great, and I'm not even going to be here. Hey, uh, for Queenie Catherine Wilkes, Rick Donnelly, Ross Ramsey, we'll see you tomorrow right here on the other side of Texas. I stumbled home, so I hid behind a dumpster in an alley.